Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and tonight we're going to focus on how America's kids are faring and what needs to be done to improve their circumstances and their futures. And we'll do that with Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. They aim to improve the lives of families and communities across the country, and particularly those of children. There's 74 million children in the country, and so they're 25% of our population, but I like to say they are 100% of our future. <laughs> you got and that so right. <laughs> if we aren't paying attention and making sure that all those kids are on the path to success, we are really putting um, so much of this country's future at risk. And then you will hear from Jenna Nicholas, the co-founder and CEO of Impact. Impact Experience. She maintains that having impact investors connect with the communities where their dollars are being targeted makes a big difference. A goal is to build bridges between investors, entrepreneurs, artists, innovators, and marginalized communities to co-create solutions together. So we work in places such as southern West Virginia around retraining former coal miners and in Puerto Rico and Houston post the hurricanes there. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, September 15th. For the first time, the nonprofit world's workforce is larger than the workforce of the manufacturing industry, according to an analysis by Johns Hopkins University researchers. Nonprofit workers now account for about 10.2 percent of the national workforce. A new study based on decades of research indicates that optimism could boost your chances of living 85 years or more by over 50 percent. Voters may form false memories after seeing fabricated news stories, especially if those stories align with their political beliefs, according to research in the psychological science. Suicide kills an average of 20 American veterans daily. Even though veterans represent just 7% of the population, they are about one and a half times more likely to die from suicide than non-veterans. And in a related story, a National Suicide Hotline Designation Act has been introduced. This would have led Americans experiencing a mental health emergency to dial 988 and immediately receive help. The number of Americans residing in multi-generational households has climbed steadily from a low of 12% in 1980 to 20% in 2016. David Gilmore, who sang Pink Floyd's classic song, Money, sold off more than $21 million worth of his guitars in a record-breaking auction hosted by Christie's. He has directed the proceeds to go to Client Earth, a nonprofit international environmental law organization. And finally, for the first time, a group of major foundation leaders has agreed to experiment with a set of best practices and policies to address the starvation cycle that undercuts the effectiveness of their grantees. And here to discuss this with us is Jerry eckhart Queenan of the Rich Band Group. Thanks for being here, Jerry. Oh, my pleasure, Denver. Great to talk with you. It was the Bridge Band Group that coined the term starvation cycle back in 2009. What does that refer to? It refers to the way that we price grants. And let me start by saying, you know, every philanthropist is committed to solving society's most pressing problems. That's why we're having this conversation. And in order to solve society's most pressing problems, we need strong, vibrant, high-performing nonprofit organizations. What the starvation cycle is about is the way we fund those organizations. And it turns out that over 80% of all funding that goes to nonprofits is in the form of a project grant. We restrict the dollars to a project or a program. That's okay. That mm -hmm. serves a useful purpose. It's the way we price them. And it turns out that we price them at a discount. 
We price them at about 85 cents on the dollar. This is the starvation cycle. What it leads to is a lot of scrambling, underfunding, not the strong infrastructure and capabilities we need to solve those problems that brought us all to the table to begin with. So on average, what is the gap between the indirect costs, and I think that's what you're referring to, of a nonprofit compared to how much of those costs are covered through a foundation grant when they fund one of these projects? Right. Okay. So on average... The indirect costs, those are the, the common pool of costs, not specific mm-hmm. to the nutrition program or the education, but the leadership, the communications, the knowledge, the IP, the measurement, all those things. Those are the indirect costs. Those costs drive impact. They're essential to drive impact. On average, uh, they're about 30% of the total and we are, on average, funding them at about 15%. Wow. So the shortfall is about 15%. It's pretty significant. It's very significant. If you were a corporation, you would go bankrupt trying to scale a model <laughs> like this. Seriously. Um, and part of what led these five foundation presidents to make this change is they saw the evidence. We pulled together the evidence that shows this funding uh, shortfall and furthermore linked it to financial stress in their most strategic and important grantees. So the most important grantees of the Ford Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, these are brand names. We all know these nonprofits. Mm -hmm. They have much weaker income statements and balance sheets, much weaker financials than we would like to see in a strong organization because of this funding shortfall. We've done it to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been talked about for a long time, and it's just I'm just delighted to see something that's really being done about it. With the different approaches taken by these foundations and others, you're not going to come up with a solution that fits everyone. Rather, you have to come up with, I guess, a menu of solutions. What are some of the items on that menu? Correct. So there's no silver bullet here, and in part because there's a tremendous diversity of nonprofits, and they have different cost structures, and they should have different cost structures, just the way corporations do. So we need a way to accommodate that. Well, the um, the article that can be read in, uh, uh, in a couple of the publications lays out six a menu of six options. And let me just take the two extremes. Uh-huh. One is you could have an accountant, presumably the accountant who's doing an audit, calculate the true indirect cost of that organization. And then any philanthropist or foundation could use that true indirect cost to calculate the correct price of the grant. It's not that hard. The federal government does it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take that long, and it's not that expensive. And once it's done, it can be reused over and over again. We piloted that with the foundations, and some of them are adopting that approach. At the other end of the extreme is what I would call flexible funding, enterprise-level funding. This includes unrestricted funding. It includes uh, more flexible funding that's maybe specific to a program, but you're leaving it up to the organization to decide how how to allocate those dollars. Uh, 
And many foundations like Hewlett and Ford in particular feel that this is really the right way to go with the kinds of strategies that they are putting in place on climate change, social justice, et cetera. And so they're moving away from project grants, not totally, mm-hmm. uh, but predominantly, and focusing on making sure that that unrestricted funding and that flexible funding is at a level that it covers the true costs. Finally, Jerry, where do you see uh, us going from here, and what do you see as the next steps to create the systemic change that is so desired? Well, it's going to take more funders, more foundations, more philanthropists uh, joining this movement, and already another eight have joined the original five. Uh, and, and, of course, there are foundations who already use these practices, uh, and we want to applaud them and, and recognize them. There is a coalition of uh, intermediaries, of accounting firms, of nonprofit financial management firms uh, who are working on this together with these foundations. And we just need more of us uh, to join this effort and actually change our behavior. Well, a great report, Jerry. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Denver. Good to talk with you. I'll be back with Lisa Hamilton of the Annie E. Casey Foundation right after this. With nearly one in four New Yorkers struggling to meet their most basic needs, we know our city is facing a crisis. But did you know that our highest poverty rates are among women and mothers? These women don't need handouts. They need a hand up. That's why Grameen America provides tens of thousands of women across our city with the loan capital they need to start their own small businesses. With the gift of entrepreneurship, these women have the opportunity to escape poverty, provide for their children, and gain independence. Join the movement today. Invest in New York City by investing in them. Visit GrameenAmerica.org to learn more. A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to smiletrain.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. The Annie E. Casey Foundation has focused on improving the well-being of American children for over 70 years. It's also one of the most influential watchdogs for child welfare in the nation. And here to tell us what they do and how American kids are faring today, it's a pleasure to have Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Good evening, Lisa, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thanks so much, Denver. I'm happy to be here. Begin by telling us some of the history of the foundation and who was Annie Casey. I'd be delighted to. Jim Casey was the founder of UPS, the global logistics company. Jim's mother was Annie E. Casey. Ah. Jim grew up in the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. in Seattle primarily, and he faced as a young person many of the challenges that young people face today. He grew up in a low-income household. His father died when he was really young. Mm -hmm. Uh, He grew up the son of an Irish immigrant. Uh, He had to drop out of school when he was around 11 to help care 
there for his mom and siblings. He had three siblings. And so um, despite those uh, challenges in his young life, um, Jim was quite um, a brilliant and entrepreneurial young man and started UPS when he was 19 years old. Oh, as my a goodness. Bicycle messenger company. And uh, he always believed that the success he had in life was due to his mother. And mm-hmm. so when he became wealthy beyond his own personal needs, he started um, several foundations. But one of those is the Annie Casey Foundation, which he named in honor of his mother. Um, I'd also love to say that, you know, Jim was quite a philanthropist. He started not just the Annie E. Casey Foundation, but also Casey Family Programs, Mm -hmm. which is a foundation based in Seattle that focuses on child welfare. Um, The Marguerite Casey Foundation, named in honor of his sister, um, and also the UPS Foundation, the corporate foundation. So I think he's one of America's great philanthropists. That is quite a legacy. And certainly the UPS Foundation and UPS has a wonderful moral compass. Absolutely. As an organization. Well, for the past 30 years, the foundation has issued the Kids Count Data Book, which explores how American childhood experience has changed since 1990. What does the data book reveal? Well, the data book is a really important way for the Casey Foundation to provide a scorecard to the country about how children are doing nationally and how they're doing in every state, um, because there are state policies that affect how kids are doing. So we think it's really important Mm -hmm. to look at that data by state as well. And what we do is look at four important areas of a child's life, the economic well-being, their education, their health and their family and community circumstances. And so we look at 16 different data points Mm -hmm. that help us understand how kids are doing in this country. And as you said, we've been looking at these similar factors for the last 30 years. And there is good news, but also troubling news. Always the case. Always (laughs) the case. Um, So in the good news, um, what we have seen over the last 30 years is that we're making important progress in a number of areas. For example, example, um, 95% of kids today now have access to health care. That's great. Hugely important mm-hmm. so that kids can um, be healthy enough to learn and, and thrive. Um, we have seen some of the lowest rates of teen childbearing that we've seen since we've been uh, keeping uh, this data. And we're also seeing increased rates of high school graduation. So all of those are incredibly important data going in the right direction. Um, on the troubling side um, is the fact that far too many kids in this country are still growing up low income. Mm. And as many of your listeners know, um, growing up in poverty is one of the biggest risk factors that a young person could have. And so even today, um, we have um, nearly half of kids are growing up in low income families, but 18 percent of them are growing up in um, families that are below the federal poverty line. Um, So a really important area that we think um, needs to be addressed. Um, The second thing I'd say the data tells us is that we've got a lot of work to to do around educational outcomes for kids. Um, More than half of kids, 65 percent of fourth graders aren't reading on grade level. Mm. And we know that if they aren't reading uh, proficiently at that age, the odds increase greatly that they are going to drop out of high school. And so that's a really important measure that we know the country still needs to pay attention to. 
Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that um, by every measure, children of color in this country are facing bigger barriers to success. And so um, we continually raise the alarm that as the demographics of our country change, we need to pay attention to how kids of color are doing. And so the Kids Count data also tells us um, that across all of these 16 measures we're looking at, we need to pay attention to making sure that children of color um, are as successful as they can be. Well, looking at the changing face of America, how many children today are children of color? Well, today we have actually hit a tipping point that Casey had been uh, letting the country know was coming for quite a while. Today, 50 percent of the children in this country are children of color. And if you combine that with the data I just talked about, the prospects for us having healthy families and healthy communities and even a strong country are diminished if we don't make sure that we are leveraging the potential of all our kids. There's 74 million children in the country. and so they're 25% of our population, but I like to say they are 100% of our future. <laughs> you got and that so right. <laughs> if we aren't paying attention and making sure that all those kids are on the path to success, we are really putting um, so much of this country's future at risk. And Lisa, speaking about children growing up in poverty, what's the impact of having a single parent? Well, we think about single parent households is really um, making that family more at risk of being economically unstable. As we all know, uh, the costs of food and of housing and of clothing are going up and up and up. And so if you don't have the benefit of two incomes in a household, it just makes it ever more likely that that child is going to grow up um, without the economic stability that they need. And often people think about, um, you know, the access to clothing or the access Mm -hmm. to food, but um, there are really significant implications um, for, you know, their access to health care, for even housing stability. When kids move around a lot because their parents don't have the money to make sure that they have stable housing, that has huge implications for their education because they're often changing schools all the time. So when you look at the data that I shared around fourth grade reading or third grade reading, it's not just that schools aren't teaching our kids well. It's that these kids are in fragile families that are moving all the time or don't have access to health care or don't have access to good food. Those are all the ingredients that get a, a kid to school ready to learn. So it really does take paying attention to all of these factors to make sure that kids are successful. Yeah, that's a great point. You have to look at this holistically. Sometimes we, we blame the schools, we but do. there's a lot more to the equation than just what's going on in the classroom. Absolutely. Absolutely. If children aren't healthy, think of the incidence of asthma. Mm. Um, if kids are missing school because of health problems or they don't have eyeglasses and so they can't see the materials. If they're changing schools all the time because they don't have housing stability. If they show up hungry because they don't have access to breakfast or lunch, all those things can have a huge impact on um, educational outcomes. And so I think it's really important for us to understand it's not just about what schools can do, but what whole communities need to do in order to make sure the kids. You know, a thrive. corollary to Kids Count is something you spearheaded when you uh, first came to Casey, and that is the race for results. How does that differ? Well, when uh, we had been doing uh, the Kids Count data book for about 
23, 24 years. Mm -hmm. And as I said, in every one of these data books, we disaggregate the data by race and could see that children of color were not faring as well as their white peers. Um, We decided we needed to look at that a little differently. We needed to dig into that and what the causes were a little more deeply. So what we did was identify 12 indicators, some of them similar to those that Mm -hmm. we use in Kids Count, that um, are key milestones for kids from birth through adulthood. Things that we all want for our kids, that they're born at a healthy birth weight, which means they've got a lower incidence of health issues or they're reading on grade level at third grade or graduating from high school. And we combined all this data um, by race and by state uh, in order to see how different demographics were doing. And the data was just startling to us. So um, the race for results scores, when you put all of that data together, was a possible 1,000 was the best that Mm -hmm. any kid could do. That would mean that um, all the kids in that racial category, we're meeting every one of those milestones. And that's what we would hope for all children. Unfortunately, what we saw was that um, for Asian and Pacific Islander children, their scores were in the 700s, certainly not meeting all the milestones for them. But for American Indian and African American children, their scores were in the 300s and 400s. And so it was a different way for us to help the country look at how kids were doing by race and to help sound the alarm um, of something that, you know, is sort of embedded in the title of that report. It's called Race for Results. And what it means is that we are in a race to get better results for our kids so that they can all be successful. And one of the most important ways we can do that is by paying attention to the impact of race on the results that we see for kids. And so um, I'm, I'm really proud that Casey took the step to not just share that data, but to also help inform a collective understanding of how we got to that data, Mm -hmm. that it's not just the consequence of individual decision-making, but that there are generations of discriminatory policies in how we've done housing and how we funded education and how we've given people access to jobs and how we have enabled people to save for the future. All of those um, policy decisions, many of them discriminatory for hundreds of years, are really conspiring to hold children back even today and to hold families back. And so part of what we wanted to do with race report results was to not just share the data, which is what we've been doing for kids with Kids Count for a long time, but to also tell the story of the variety of barriers that not just African Americans, but American Indian Pacific Asian Pacific Islanders and Hispanic children have faced um, in their pursuit of success. And so much of that is quite insidious. Um, And really unconscious to a certain degree. My Mm -hmm. daughter went to business school, and as we were looking at business schools, one of the places she looked at was Booth, which Mm -hmm. is in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And one of the important factors of getting into business school is to show up and to tour the campus and to talk to some of the students and professors, and it really shows you have an interest in going there. Mm -hmm. But then you start to say, how many kids could not afford that trip? Exactly. And although it seems innocuous, it really isn't. It's discriminatory in in a very a way that I think a lot of people would not be aware of. Right. Or even imagine education funding. So much of the education funding um, for K-12 through schools in this country is through property taxes. Mm-hmm. Well, if you consider the fact that more 
uh, children of color live in low-income neighborhoods, which uh, the property isn't valued as highly, uh, and they don't have um, the same sorts of property tax rates. You can easily see how, sure though, <laughs> you know, a, a facially neutral policy that says we're going to fund schools through property taxes, once you consider housing segregation and the impact of living in high poverty neighborhood, you've got low income kids with much less access to resources and, and um, that falls more on children of color. So um, those are the kinds of things that we have to pay attention to that policies that may appear to be racially neutral um, certainly weren't always that way by design. Sure. Um, and they certainly can have disparate impact on the outcomes. Uh, on the outcomes. <laughs> exactly. Well, Casey does a lot of work in all these different areas, so let me take one, and the one I probably know you guys best for, and that would be your Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative and what you've done about reducing reducing youth incarceration. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Well, the, um, let me start generally by saying the Casey Foundation focuses in three key areas. The first uh, being focusing on keeping children and families, mm-hmm. and that's our work around child welfare and juvenile justice, two systems that often um, remove children from their families. We focus on economic opportunity. How do we help more children grow up in economically stable families? And then in um, neighborhood development, how do we help create safe, healthy places for kids to grow up? And so the work that we do in juvenile justice is directly tied to that belief that children should grow up in families. Mm-hmm. Um, even children who might have made a mistake or done something wrong still need the love and support and nurturing of their families. And unfortunately, this country um, applies the same uh, punitive um, and uh, um, uh, approach to um, mistakes that we apl- to children that we apply at the adult level, and mm-hmm. so we um, absolutely over incarcerate children for things that um, uh, they absolutely um, should not be removed from their homes or their communities for. And so, twenty five um, years ago, um, as uh, the country was uh, grappling with the notion of you know super predators, this notion that there were these young people in our communities that needed to be removed in order to make them more safe, Um, Casey began um, this incredible journey to help our country think about a more um, rational and research-based way uh, to deal with young people who may have made mistakes or who have gotten in trouble. And out of that grew the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. And what that work is focused on is really the beginning part of the juvenile justice system. If today a young person gets in trouble, they you know, maybe stole a candy bar at a uh, at a corner store. Um, what are the odds that that child is going home tonight while their case is adjudicated, or that they will sit in some type of locked facility as they await um, the uh, progress of their case? Um, we realized very early that that first decision of whether or not that young person goes home can have a huge impact on their lives for decades to come. And so our initiative was really about how to help juvenile justice systems and judges and communities make a better decision at that very first entry point. And 
overwhelmingly, those young people are not at any risk of hurting anyone in their community, and they're actually going to be better if they are at home with their families. And so what this initiative does is um, really helps adults make better decisions on the, on behalf of young people in order to keep them home. And we are so pleased that over the last 25 years, we have seen dramatic decreases in detention for young people, more than 50 percent um, from what we saw just 25 years ago. So, um, you know, that work has expanded from sort of what's that first decision point that um, uh, adults have to make a decision about to um, work we're even doing today around probation and how mm-hmm. we can make um, probation a more um, helpful uh, intervention for young people than just a compliance intervention. How can they help them get on track in school and get access to jobs and mentors, um, even to the deeper end of the system if a young person is adjudicated and determined to have done something wrong? Um, do they have to sit in locked institutions that prevent them from getting the education and rehabilitation they need? Yeah, you know, I find that to be fascinating, the way you tackle that. Because a lot of people who want to change a system try to change a system. What you did is you looked at a particular niche, and that would have been mm-hmm. the time from you were arrested to the time you have your first hearing. Exactly. Uh, speak a little bit about that and how you try to identify those lever points right. to really change an entire system. I guess if one domino falls, <laughs> others will begin, it and does. you prove to Talk a little bit it about does. that. It does. I think that is one of the most um, special parts of the way that Casey does its work. And first I'll say it's that we choose to work with public systems because we know that public systems have such a big impact impact mm-hmm. on um, the lives of uh, vulnerable young people. Um, many foundations choose to only work with nonprofit organizations. Casey is one of the few that really believes that strengthening the decision making and practices of a public system can have huge implications. And so the first thing I'll say that's special to your point is that we're partnering with public systems mm-hmm. and not just with nonprofit organizations. Um, but you know, one of the important ways we do that is by finding the key decision point. Yes. If you want to change a system, you can't boil the ocean. You've got to find the place to start. That's what we all try to do. <laughs> That's what we all try to do. But we try to be um, very thoughtful and strategic and figure out what's the most important decision point we can tackle at this moment. And how can we change not just the tools that public systems or or stakeholders use to make those decisions, but often it's about the mindset. Mm -hmm. How do you change how people think about the decision they need to make at this moment? Can't change behavior until you change the mindset. Unless you change the mindset. And so that's been a big part of the work is to just change that mindset about, um, you know, the value of uh, family in these young people's lives and the importance of keeping them out of places that aren't safe for them, mm-hmm. that aren't giving them the supports they need, and that in many instances, the research tells us, put them on a, fa- a path to further delinquent behavior. So um, we really do try to use our work to build evidence about what works. Um, And you use evidence before you do your work as well. You base so much of it on those practices. We do, and on data. Absolutely. That's, uh, you know, one of the things that is common about UPS and about the Annie E. Casey Foundation is that Jim Casey believed deeply in data. There was a quote that he had, you know, in God we trust in everything else we measure. And so (laughs) (laughs) there has always been a really deep commitment to data and evidence uh, at the foundation to inform our work, and that's what Kids Count grows out of and even 
initiatives like the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Is there a thread that runs through all the different things that you do? Um, I would say the the common belief that uh, we have to help young people have a brighter future, you know, that that guiding force. That's your mantra. Um, that's our mantra. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that increasingly um, our work has um, been more organized around young people. There are organizations that focus more on younger children or adult interventions. Casey's work, when you think about juvenile justice, those young people who are most likely be in group homes and child welfare, which is a big issue for us, um, helping young people get access to jobs, they're, you know, graduate from high school and get their first job or even neighborhood um, issues. Um, I would say that young people are probably a common thread that you would find in uh, in Casey's work, which is an age population that's a little different than yeah, many of our peers. Yeah, a little bit different and changing all the time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we as uh, in the media focus so much on the income disparity mm-hmm. between racial groups and mm-hmm. and others, but really the wealth divide is staggering. You've talked a little bit about that. Fill us in. Absolutely. Well, I I talked about the importance of economic stability for uh, young people growing up. Uh, And when you look at that data disaggregated by race, it is abundantly clear that um, families of color have um, not just less income, but also fewer assets Mm. in order to stabilize their families. When you think about what helps a family be stable, it's not just income every day, but it's also having some safety net of resources to help you weather the storm. If you have a car that breaks down, if a child gets sick, um, you need some resources to help you weather that. And that's what we often refer to as wealth. Mm -hmm. Um, Wealth isn't just about millionaires. (laughs) Wealth (laughs) is also about coming up with that $400. (laughs) The average American. And, you you know, you may have even seen the studies that most Americans don't have $400 to weather a storm. But we see that families of color are even more vulnerable Mm -hmm. and, and have those resources. So when we think about how to make families more economically stable, we aren't just thinking about workforce development and how to help people get better jobs. We're also thinking about how to create opportunities for them to save and build that nest egg that helps them weather the storm. And so that's where um, work around the racial wealth gap comes in, is what can we do to help more families of color um, who are disproportionately those families that can't, you know, weather those kinds of financial storms? What can we do to help them build up some assets? And uh, one of the ways that Casey has recently been thinking about that is around entrepreneurship. I know that. (laughs) Really, a lot of people don't think about that, but it really holds a tremendous amount of promise. Talk about some of the initiatives in that area, and particularly in the South. Absolutely. And one thing I will say is that, um, you know, the majority of children of color, 55 percent of them live in the South. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to try to address um, racial inequality, you need to go to the places where (laughs) those children are. (laughs) And they are actually predominantly in the South and the Southwest. And so geography is really important uh, as a part of this. Um, But as you note, there's been lots of research on what kinds of strategies address the racial wealth gap and entrepreneurship has been shown to be one of the most effective strategies in that regard. <laughs> Who knew? Well, if um, if you think about what a, a business does, um, it is an opportunity to, uh, you know, grow an income-producing uh Uh, asset over time. It's a way to accumulate um, resources over time. And so it it is 
in some ways intuitive that um, entrepreneurship, building a business, uh, would enable families to have um, more stability. I'll say that I know that from my own experience. Mm-hmm. I am the daughter of uh, three generations of entrepreneurs, and you know everything from the family farm that yeah. helped put my grandparents through college to you know my father has his own law firm, and mm-hmm. so that helped put me through <laughs> college. So <laughs> I uh, I am, a, and I grew up in the South, so I'm a prime example of um, of the benefits of, of entrepreneurship. Um, but what we also know is that very often um, entrepreneurs of color don't have access to the resources and um, information that they need in yeah. order to really build their businesses. Um, as any entrepreneur, entrepreneur knows, you need um, capital in order to help grow your business. And if you don't have access um, to money to help invest in your business, you're going to be constrained in how that business can grow. But you also need technical yes. information mm-hmm. about um, what markets are best to go into or what kind of equipment might you need to invest in. And, um, you know, how can you manage your human resources in the most effective ways? And so our work is really about how to provide really those two key things. How do we help provide more access to capital for entrepreneurs? And how do we provide access to the kind of technical assistance that they are going to need. And we are doing that work um, in two places in particular in uh, Baltimore and Atlanta, uh, two places we call our hometowns yes. um, because Baltimore is where the foundation's based. Atlanta is where UPS is headquartered. And in both of those places, we have um, work going on to strengthen community development finance institutions. So these are, you know, a particular kind of lending organization mm-hmm. um, that really caters to um, low-income individuals or those without access to um, mainstream banking services. So we're trying to strengthen these um, specialty banks, if you will, because they are an important source of both capital and technical assistance for um, uh, entrepreneurs of color and are seeing um, really some important ways that that's starting to build some momentum with entrepreneurs in those communities. Let's speak a little bit about Baltimore. Uh, the foundation, I believe, started in Seattle, moved to Greenwich, mm-hmm. and then in 1994 you came to Baltimore. What would you say the Casey's Foundation's relationship is with Baltimore, and did it change any after the uh, Freddie Gray affair? Well, I think Baltimore is just an incredible city. It is a place with um, wonderful people and incredible assets. It sits right in the middle of the East Coast on the water, um, you know, with great proximity to great business centers like D.C. and and New York, Um, amazing educational institutions there, um, and a vibrant arts community. The oldest arts college in the country is in Baltimore. So, um, you know, I I do want to say I think it's a beautiful place and regret that Baltimore doesn't always get the recognition for being such a wonderful place uh, that it is. Uh, And so we're really fortunate that... um, uh, the foundation's first president made the decision to move us to Baltimore, uh, and I think we have really thrived in that city and have really um, worked hard to be good citizens in that community. Our office is right in the middle of a beautiful historic neighborhood called mm-hmm. Mount Vernon, uh, and we've got leaders, including me, who serve on nearly every uh, sort of civic leadership table uh, in the city because we really believe in the promise of and you the really city. Care. 
And we really care about that city. And I'll say after the Freddie Gray incident, um, the foundation had been engaged in um, work across those three areas I talked about. Mm -hmm. We've been doing work around workforce development and helping um, workforce programs. It got hundreds of people jobs. We had been doing education work to help make sure kids had access to quality education. We'd been deeply invested in a project in East Baltimore to revive it and bring it back to um, to its um, uh, to a healthy, strong community for families. But post Freddie Gray, um, we really thought more about how we could help the young people in Baltimore. Freddie Gray, as a person, I think was um, reflected. Uh, his his life experience reflected so many of the challenges young people in Baltimore yeah, face. Emblematic of them. It really was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a young person who grew up low income, who, you know, faced all kinds of uh, barriers in his life. And so I would say post-Freddie Gray, um, we've continued to do many of the same things we did before, but have really um, strengthened our focus on how we can help young people in Baltimore be successful, everything from um, investing more in summer learning opportunities for them, um, investing a lot more in youth leadership. How do we um, elevate the voice and the vision of young people in Baltimore who have so many ideas about ways that the city can be stronger? So um, I, I think we're excited about this new yeah. phase of our work um, and still think Baltimore is a beautiful city with lots to grow. Yeah, young people know the answers to their challenges. They do. Certainly better than you and I. They do. And that's one thing philanthropy um, needs to do more of, Mm -hmm. Um, not just listening to young people, but also listening to um, those we seek to serve. Yeah. I think that's the closer an, you are to the problem, the closer you are to the solution. Absolutely. That's one thing Brian Stevenson, you know, always yeah. talks about uh, being proximate to the problem. And um, I would say that over time we're doing um, more and more to um, support uh, the leadership of not just young people, but those folks in the community who have great ideas about how their challenges can be addressed. When your predecessor, Patrick McCarthy, first had lunch with you, Lisa, he said that you sounded like a Casey person. (laughs) Now, I want to know, what does a Casey person sound like? Although I should probably know at this point of the interview. (laughs) Well, um, I think what he was saying is that, uh, you know, I spent a good portion of my career at UPS. Mm -hmm. And UPS and Casey had that common founder in Jim Casey, and I believe that he instilled so many of the same values in the foundation that he brought to the company. And so I think his uh, hearing that I cared a lot about data, yeah. uh, that measurement and metrics mattered to me. Um, I'll know that I was a Casey trustee before I became a Casey <laughs> employee. So he heard me speak as a as a trustee. I cared lots about measurement and, and metrics um, in our work. Um, Jim Casey used to have this phrase called constructive dissatisfaction, Hmm. which meant that um, there's always a new horizon in your work. There's always more to do. You can never become complacent. And I think he heard my um, my belief that there was more the foundation could do and how could we focus on doing the most that we could for young people. Um, And uh, I think he heard the um, the deep commitment to children and families that it was an issue. The work we do is just an issue that I'm very passionate about. So I think that's what he meant. Yeah. That I cared about data. I was never satisfied with what is, and I believed deeply in the mission. And I can also hear in your voice, there's a sense of urgency. Absolutely. Race I, for results. <laughs> we have to, we really 
need to pay attention to how our children are doing in this country, because I don't think that any ambitions we have as a country can be realized unless we're paying attention to our children. Mm -hmm. And every day I see us making um, policy decisions and investment decisions that go counter to what's best for kids. And so I feel like it's urgent for us to get um, public leaders and nonprofit leaders and um, uh legislators all to um, prioritize the interests of children, I think we will be a much better place if we put our children first. How would you describe your leadership style? I would say I am probably a coach. Mm, that's <laughs> I, a great leadership style. <laughs> I, uh, I am so lucky that the nearly 200 people who work at the Annie Casey Foundation are just brilliant innovators and um, about the most dedicated group of people I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So um, when you have a fantastic team, the most important thing you can do is just be a great coach to them and help call the plays and <laughs> and uh, help us uh, help us train and prepare so that when we have to uh, get on the field, we are the best that we can be. Let me close with this, Lisa. You've been the CEO of uh, the organization only since the beginning of the year. But how would you like to build upon what the organization has already been able to achieve? What is your vision for the future of the foundation? Uh, My vision is really about uh, integration and collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mentioned that the foundation for many years has been focused on strengthening families and building economic opportunity and uh, strengthening neighborhoods. We have often pursued those uh, results as if they are separate and apart from one another. Uh, But as I talked about the Kids Count work, they are deeply intertwined. And I have an aspiration that our organization um, can be successful, not just in these independent areas, Mm -hmm. but that we can bring them together and think about the ways that place contributes to economic opportunity or recognize that many of the young people who are involved in systems come from the same neighborhoods and they're low income. So I think we've really got to do more to leverage the intersections in our work. And so I'm How do you looking, break down those silos? You have to, well, I think it's about creating a common result. And as I said, a lot of the work that we do focuses on young people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm excited for a future at Casey where we are thinking about how we can bring all of our strategies together to help young people be successful. Yeah, that's great to hear you say that because I've spoken to a number of other CEOs of foundations who say we're demanding this integrated holistic approach from the community to solve problems, mm-hmm. but we're <laughs> siloed ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, Absolutely. we better practice what we're preaching <laughs> well, and think, start at home. <laughs> well, I think often we imagine it'll be easier to tackle an issue if we just take it on one separate piece at a time. But if you don't appreciate the intersections of those things, you're actually not going to get the the right solutions. I imagine it's sort of like a Rubik's Cube. You don't win at a Rubik's Cube just getting all the yellows lined up. (laughs) You can only only win at a Rubik's Cube if you align all the different sides and they relate to one another. You can't solve one side without solving for the other. So I think of our work like a Rubik's Cube. I want us to think about how we can solve problems, uh, multiple problems at one time rather than just trying to solve for one color. That is a great metaphor. (laughs) Well, thank you. And also, I think when you're trying to solve one problem at a time, you have those unintended consequences in those other areas (laughs) because you're only focused on your area. Well, Lisa Hamilton, the president and CEO of the Annie E. Casey Foundation, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. What information is on your website you think would be of particular interest to some of the listeners out there? Well, our website is AECF.com. 
eekcfoundation.org, Annie EKC Foundation's initials. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a wealth of uh, information from uh, information about our investment projects to a vast amount of research. Uh, and you can also access the Kids Count Data Center through that, which has millions of data points about children in this country uh, that we'd invite uh, your listeners to take a look at. Well, thank you, Lisa. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. Impact investing is an exciting and rapidly growing industry powered by investors who are determined to generate social and environmental impact as well as financial returns. But often there is a disconnect between the investor and the community that is receiving the investment. My next guest decided to do something to bridge that gap. She is Jenna Nicholas, the co-founder and CEO of Impact Experience. Good evening, Jenna, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. What is Impact Experience, and how did you come up with this idea? At Impact Experience, really our goal is to build bridges between investors, entrepreneurs, artists, innovators, and marginalized communities to co-create solutions together. So we work in places such as southern West Virginia around retraining former coal miners and in Puerto Rico and Houston post the hurricanes there. And I had been working in the impact investing space initially with the Calvert funds and then uh, helping to build a coalition of foundations that were divesting from fossil fuels and investing in new economy solutions and just kept on seeing how disconnected so many of the funders that we were working with were from the communities in which they were looking at investing in. And so got inspired by how do we build bridges between investors and entrepreneurs and and marginalized communities. And then what you do is you bring these uh, investors and others to the marginalized communities for an impact experience. And this can last for a couple days. So walk us through one. Who's there? What what, What do the participants do for three days? And where do you hope you'll come out at the end? Yes. No, thank you for the question. Um, So we typically actually sort of structure our engagements as nine months to one year engagements with the three day uh, impact experience itself being a component of a larger engagement. And firstly, within every community that we're working with, we always have a local partner. So in West Virginia, it's a it's a health clinic in Williamson, West Virginia, that's focused on serving people who are 80% below the poverty line. In Arizona, we partnered with Arizona State University. So we always have a local partner Mm -hmm. that really is the eyes and the ears on the ground and there's a deep local wisdom. And we'll spend a lot of time with them up front, really uh, identifying what are the core opportunities and challenges within the community. And that will help to drive our curation of who's taking part in the impact experiences. And we'll always curate um, a group with a lens around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So ensuring that we have a diverse range of perspectives and backgrounds and race and gender and socioeconomic context. 
Um, and, um, and then we have a curriculum that we've designed. So over the course of those three days, there's three core parts to it. The first part is really focused on trust building. So given that we're working in places often where there's a history of extraction and a lot of challenges around trust building, the need to really establish a strong foundation of trust as being a really important aspect of the work. And then we'll transition into mapping of opportunities and challenges and we'll sort of use a lot of insights from design thinking and break out into small groups and start to really map that out and then finally we're sort of driving towards concrete commitments and next steps Mm -hmm. and so we always leave each of the gatherings with everybody making a very tangible set of commitments which we then track and follow up with over time and so it's it's really an ongoing engagement and sometimes multiple years where we'll be um, bringing together groups to build off the previously existing groups and the insights that have come from that. That's interesting. So this is not just a one-time visit. There is a relationship and a continuity that continues between the community and the investors, correct? Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. How does the nature of these investments, these impact investments, change as a result of investors going to visit a community compared to the way they have traditionally been done? So we often think about it actually as almost like an insurance, right? So there's, there's actually uh, a number of unintended consequences that we find can emerge if this upfront time isn't made in really building these strong ties, really understanding the nuances of what's going on um, within the community um, and having that ability to be able to actually engage from a place of this deep understanding um and so the fear that if people are just making decisions based on preconceived notions from outside of the community and be what's worked in other places but it's not necessarily grounded in the realities of what's taking place on the ground um then the ability to actually design solutions that are effective both from an impact perspective and from a returns perspective um, is greatly minimized as a result. So the ability to actually be able to at least try to increase the likelihood of the success of the projects from a sustainable long-term perspective uh, we find is greatly increased through taking part in a process like this. Yeah, so when these marginalized communities are really co-creating the solution, have you found any difference in the nature of the solution compared to what otherwise might have occurred? Yes, we found that it's very much that the because of that co-creation process, as you allude to, um, that the design of those solutions are much more nuanced to the cultural um, dynamics within a given community. So rather than it being very much a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to thinking about engagement with communities is like, oh, well, this works in this community, so of course it's naturally going to work in this other community. Uh, it's much more tailored towards those particular dynamics there. So you know, in West Virginia, a lot of the work has been around supporting the build-out of tourism opportunities there and retraining former coal miners and supporting around broadband access. So those types of engagement have really been built off your understanding where the community is currently at and what the specific needs are at this point in time. Yeah, you've been able to bring in a phenomenal, your organization, bring in a phenomenal amount of money to West Virginia. How much has that been? It's about $10 million. That's fantastic, yeah. How often do you conduct an experience? And in addition to a couple that you've mentioned, what are some of the places where you've done this? 
We have about one every month. Um, That's a lot. Some of those are repeat engagements. Yeah, we have an amazing team. We also run um, these sort of training programs that we host at Stanford um, where we have have a research partnership with Stanford and with an impact fund of funds called Illumin Capital, Mm -hmm. uh, which is all focused on research around implicit bias and investing. So, how do we unlock more capital into women and people of color run businesses? Um, and so that's a, le- a big lens through which we apply to all of our work. So during these training programs that we have at Stanford, we have a component of that that's focused on implicit bias, a component that's focused on impact investing and on community engagement. We've also been, been bringing groups to Montgomery, Alabama to visit the Equal Justice Initiative lynching memorial and museums. It's a know, a harrowing experience to go and visit um, the, the Memorial Museum, but the power of being able to have an experience like that as people are thinking about some of these themes around the structural racism and how that plays out to today um, is incredibly powerful. So we have a few ongoing programs you know, like that. And then we have, for example, a couple of partnerships right now, one with the Sierra Club. Um, they have an initiative called Ready for 100. So uh-huh. it's 100 cities that have committed to transitioning to 100% renewable energy. And one of them is in Atlanta. So we're doing some work in Atlanta. Um, and then another project with a group called the Steve Fund that's really focused on mental health and young people of color. Um, so we it's a mixture of both the place-based work as well as um, some thematic work as well. A lot going on. Have you noticed anything from the people who make these uh, trips, uh, the investors themselves, Hey, is there any evidence it's going to change the way they go about their philanthropy and the way they're going to go about their investing? So it's a great question, and that's actually a big part of our um, both theory of change and as we think about the success of our work, it's just as much about what is the impact in the direct community that the group is taking part in, but then also how is this influencing how people are making decisions more broadly, even outside of that particular community. And so we've had our first impact experience was about four and a half years ago now in uh, New Orleans. And we had um, investor take part in our experience there. And he was just a traditional investor, did not have any impact lens as he as it related to his investments previously. And he said, you know, afterwards, it was years later, he's like, I have now any time I make an investment decision, I am looking at this through the lens of what is the impact that's being created here or not. Um, And so the ability to actually both equip people with the tools to be able to have more of an impact lens as it relates to their investments. And then furthermore, uh, as it relates to thinking about some of these frames around implicit bias. So when we think about the $69 trillion that are invested, uh, or less than 2% of that goes into women and people of color run businesses. And Mm. so the ability to have people thinking about that as part of the lens through which they're engaging with their investments is you know, something that is that we really emphasize as part of the program when we support and track around that over time. Yeah, that's got to be quite rewarding to hear that. Well, let me close with this, Jenna. Mm. What do you think is the future of impact investing as well as impact experience? Where are you going to go with this? So I think that we're just going to keep seeing an increase in uh, different impact investing opportunities and more and more of the mainstreaming of that. So seeing a lot of the large institutional investors raising impact investing funds, and Apollo being the most recent one this past week, you know, launching a billion dollar impact fund. 
Um, and then I think particularly with the next generation, with intergenerational wealth transfer that's taking place and an interest from millennials and having more impact oriented investments and putting pressure on their families and on their advisors for more of this um, impact oriented investments. I think we're just going to see more and more of that. And I think similarly, as it relates to the impact experience work, we're having more and more demand for the work, just given the increase that's happening more broadly within the impact investing space. So I think both going more deeply within the communities that we're already working in, as well as expanding to other communities, both within the U.S., but also internationally, will be a key part of our focus moving forward. Well, very interesting and a great approach to all of this. Jenna Nicholas, the CEO of Impact Experience, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. If someone's listening, whether they're an impact investor or an individual who might be part of a community that could use a little bit of investment, how can they proceed? Well, it'd be great. Come check out our website. Uh, it's www.impact-experience.com and come take part. We have programs as I mentioned every month, so it'd be wonderful to have you um, be part of our programs. And if you're interested in having impact experiences in your communities, we would love to be in touch around that. Uh, and I think more broadly, I think there's a powerful opportunity right now, really across asset classes and no matter what one's wealth level is, to really think about how to have more of a, an alignment between our values and our investments. So um, digging into those different opportunities and going on that journey, I think it's, um, it's an exciting one. I certainly agree. Well, thanks, Jen. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Christine Quinn, the former Speaker of the New York City Council and currently the CEO of WIN, an organization that supports homeless families. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.